You look weary. Come closer. <laughs> I am the teller. Tales of wonder. Tales of light. And dark. There are all manner of stories here. So come. Sit by the fire. Let me tell you a story. Hello, and welcome to the fire. In this episode, we are treated to the first chapter in a tale from the mythic and grand age of the Wild West. In the town of Saltwind, Utah, Sheriff Bill Cutty is old, his fire and drive for justice waning and burning out. Under the thumb of the right landing-owning Gray family, Sheriff Cutty has resigned himself to merely towing the line. But when the Gray family comes into conflict, with upstarting crop sheriff farmer John Magna and his wife Laura. Sheriff Bill Cutty will have to decide whether he's going to step up for the young couple or allow the Greys' dreadful reign over the town to continue. May I present In a Man's Pocket, Part 1. 1868 From the great state of Utah The Desk of Sheriff Bill Cutty. My dearest Sicily, I hope this letter finds you in much the same manner in which it has left me. In good health, spirits the same, and with a profound sense of love and longing, I can scarcely believe it has been six months since I last laid eyes on you. Yet the aching in my heart reminds me daily that it is true. It was a long journey from our home in the great state of New York, while I know that this was not the life you chose, it warms my soul to know that you believe in me and the task I have been assigned by our federal government. I arrived in the town of Saltwind a week ago and have been so consumed with the work that my new title provides I have scarcely had the time to remove my boots or write you, my beloved wife. As you know from our long conversations into the night all those months ago, this little town was once the bastion of Confederate soldiers and as such, the still stinging wound of their loss in the great war that ended three years ago still hangs bitter on some of the men's hearts in this part of our great nation. As such, the men of our government thought it prudent that myself, highly decorated Union man, should take up the newly vacant post of sheriff here. From what I have seen since my arrival, town sorely needs it. From what I have come to understand, town is largely made up of nearby farmers and ranchers, mostly indebted and tenants of the Gray family, whose name I doubt you have not heard before, even all the way up in New York. Some say the Gray family made their name and their fortunes in the railroad. And while I do know they have connection in that industry, judging by the size of their property when I took a ride out on old Lucy, she is keeping well, by the way, and made the journey right enough, I'm sure you'd be pleased to know. Their fortunes were made in that poisonous business of slaves. Suffice to say, I'll be keeping an eye on the Greys. I'm sure they will be engaged in much the same surveillance of yours truly. When I arrived, I was informed by the locals that they had designs on the position from one of their own. No doubt to better serve their agenda of controlling this town. The lingering loss of the war has no doubt focused their resolve into controlling at least a portion of this great country, since the rest has been torn from their grasp. 
but I do not wish to waste such long streams of this letter with knowledge of these various facts about our new home. You will come to know them soon enough. I pray this letter reaches you prior to your departure from New York. I know that the men charged with your escort are leaving Washington in a few days and will no doubt be with you in due course. I find myself restless at night despite my exhaustion from the day's frantic activity but I have long come to realize that without your gentle breathing beside me and the warmth of your touch, sleep is as elusive as water in the deserts of Nevada. When I shake myself awake in the rising of the dawn's light, I reach out for you and find my hand empty and my eyes moistened from the lack of your presence. Hurry to me, my darling Sicily, so this old fool might get some respite and some love in a town that is, for the time being, sorely lacking in both. I must go now. This town is in need of watching over it. My eyes have now dried and sharpened. When I find those brief moments of the day unoccupied by the toils of this position, I'll point these eyes to the road and look for you on the horizon. My heart rattles in my chest at the thought. With love unchanging and everlasting, your husband, William Cuddy. 1888, present day. Bill Cuddy awoke in much the same way he did every morning. With a pounding headache, dry mouth, and the dust and grime from the street outside, lightly dusting every exposed area of skin. He sat up in his bed and wiped his bleary eyes as they focused in the stark light of the morning, the wind outside gently rattling the glass of the windows. He looked around the small house he had occupied for the last twenty years. It was not fancy, nor did it have any of the trappings of luxury of the house he had first lived in when he first moved to Saltwind. A simple one-room house, once a hunting lodge for a Randolph Guten, German trapper Cutty had sent to the gallows for the murder of an 18-year-old girl. Old Randolph had grown tired of the hunting and skinning of creatures, and had decided to dabble in the flesh of his fellow man. Luckily for the rest of the town, but unluckily for him and his victim, Cutty had stumbled upon Randolph out by Watts Creek, just outside of Saltwind, when he was halfway through the curing process. He could still smell the girl's flesh whenever he smelt cooking pork, and as such had abstained from eating it ever since. Cutty rose from his bed and surveyed the one-room home as he always did. His bed was in a centralised position against the back wall, facing the only door into the house. On the right-hand side was a barrel of water for cleaning and drinking, a small mirror next to it nailed into the wall. A straight razor and some shaving cream were balanced neatly on a small wooden shelf, but he had long ago gave up the task of self-care and grooming, allowing his now silvery and white hair to grow on his head and face. He wanted most of his face to be obscured from sight these days. On the far side of the house was the fireplace, a small table and single chair next to it. Previous night's stew sat still bubbling in the pot above the embers of the now dead fire. He had not eaten the night before. He rarely did, unless forced to out of kindness or politeness to one of the many townsfolk who opened their homes to him on a regular basis. Cutty shambled over to the pair of wardrobes that stood by the front door. For a moment he stopped and looked at them. They were both of the same design and wood. Cedar. Sicily had picked them out. The one on the left was faded, scratched from his nails and his clothing's flinging zips dragging across it when leaving. The other was in perfect condition, waxed, varnished, Clean and ready for use. Cutty opened his wardrobe and pulled out his usual attire. Brown long-sleeved shirt, a pair of well-worn black jeans, black and blue mottled waistcoat, and his trusty long black duster coat. 
All of them were pulled on in the same rhythmic pattern of the man who has worn the same clothes every day for a seemingly endless stretch of years. He may as well have been pulling on his own skin. Once he was dressed, he approached the mirror by the water barrel and washed his face, wincing and relishing in the cold of the water. He inspected his face. He was a man of some fifty-something years by now. He had lost count since he took up residence in Saltwind twenty years ago. Somehow celebrating the anniversary of his birth, storing that knowledge had fallen out of his head in the intervening years. His skin was taut and tanned from the Utah sun, bordering on tanned leather. His eyes were sharp and vibrant, also brown. The rest of his face was obscured by the stark white and grey of his long hair and beard. With a sigh, Cutty turned back into his tiny house and stalked over to the single chair. Perched on the top was his hat, a wide-brimmed black hat, stained, torn, with one single hole through the brim where a drunkard's bullet had sped past his eyes five years ago in a brawl at Benson's saloon. He pulled it on and reached back to the chair for his holster. A small strap of brown leather, in its grasp a steel skull-filled pistol. It was clean and in mint condition. One possession aside from the second wardrobe he kept perfect. He held it in his hand for a moment and looked at its grip. Engraved into the wood handle, a stag with great intertwining antlers. Below it, the initials CC. Cutty slipped the gun into the holster and, pulling on his suspenders, straightened himself and headed for the door. The heat from the morning sun hit him hard, like always. and He held up a hand to block the glare as he surveyed the land around the hunting lodge. It was only an acre's worth. He didn't do any farming or cattle tending. He was the sheriff. He had neither time nor the patience for such work. Due to this, the sun-baked grass around the house was patchy and overgrown in some places. Wasn't anything else of note around the lodge save for the well to his water some one hundred paces from the house, and the hitching post where Lucia stood, gently stamping her feet. Bill Cutty smiled for the first time that morning as he approached his horse. She was a beautiful creature, with chestnut hair and a long black mane. She looked exactly like her mother, Lucy, who had died some ten years ago. Luckily, Bill had been able to contact the same livery from which she hailed, and gain access to her offspring, were born some years before he bought her. He stroked her gently and pulled a biscuit from the saddlebag balanced on the hitching post and fed it to her grateful, exploring mouth. Morning, girl. You ready? Bill commenced the well-worn and familiar task of preparing Lucia for the morning's ride into town. He pulled the saddle up and tied it up tight enough not to slip, but not so tight to cut into her haunches. Then grabbing the reins, he walked her over to the water trough and waited for her to lap up a sufficient amount as he rolled a cigarette from the small leather pouch contained in his jacket pocket. As he placed the cigarette in his mouth, struck a match to light it, looked out down the road to Saltwind. Things had changed since his arrival all those years ago. The road into town had been littered with the burnt-out carcasses of homesteads, barns, farms and homes when he arrived. With the investments of the Grey family, the town had exploded. Entire fields around the town were now all bustling with the very much alive mirror images of the former dead. Fields of corn, tobacco, sheep, cows, goats, all manner of crops and creatures. If a stranger were to ride down the long road to Saltwind, they'd surely think the American ideal was alive, well and thriving. Bill Cutty laughed. How wrong they'd be. Lucia raised her dripping mouth from the trough and turned to Bill. She was done for now. All right, girl, let's get at him, shall we? Bill rode down the road to Saltwind, a trail of cigarette smoke following him on the wind. As he rode, he cast his eye across the fields and the plains for anything out of the ordinary. 
As was the case, usually, all was normal. Farmers were pulling their ploughs, the cattlemen tending to their flocks. Wives and children worked alongside their husbands and fathers alike. Bill nodded and waved to any of the townspeople that offered him the same. Over the past twenty years, Sheriff Bill Cutty had established himself as a fair lawman. He towed a line on the greatest moral and legal courses, but could overlook the various tastes and activities of men that might raise the eyebrows of someone with a more prudish temperament. And yet as the years had gone by, the fire in Bill Cutty's stomach had dwindled and lapsed, like the coals under his uneaten dinner. Justice, as it stood in this country, as it had been promised when they had wrenched their liberty out from under the British, and again in the Great War twenty years ago, seemed like what it had been spoken of. An idea. A fancy. Cutty had seen men as wicked as they could be pass on through Saltwind, telling tales of their cruelty in Benson's saloon right in front of him. And yet he could do nothing. Their crimes taking place in the state over or twice over. He could make an attempt, but such an arrest would no doubt bring a marauder's horde over the hills into Saltwind, and lay waste to the town that had, through much hardship, rose up from the ashes of the Confederacy. So Cutty had stuck to what he could do, maintaining the law and justice of this town, and let the rest fall to the marshals. He often wondered how well he had done that. He often wondered if things might have been different if it hadn't had happened. Sheriff! Sheriff! The shrill voice of Irma Brown broke Cutty's thoughts as he came out of his trance to see he had arrived in the town proper. He looked down to the frail Irma Brown as she hobbled over to him from the general store. She had been here as long as the town had borne its name running the general store with her husband Harold until his passing from the typhoid epidemic that had run rampant in 1879. Since then, she had run the store on her lonesome without so much as a complaint or a trouble. Good morning, Mrs. Brown. How are you today? Bill said, slowing Lucia down to a slow trot. Irma smiled at Bill with her gaping lips. Well, well as I could be given this heat, Sheriff. Well, I know I ain't need to tell you that living out there in that shack. Bill simply nodded as he cast his eye over to what no doubt was going to be the subject of Irma's discussion. His old house at the end of the street, sandwiched between Benson's saloon and Frankie's tool house. Irma Brown had offered her services as a housekeeper when Bill had abandoned it in 1869. Irma noticed Bill's lack of response and pressed on. Well, anyhow, I know you don't like discussing it, or even entertaining the idea, but, well, Mr. Gray was in crying about the house again. Now, I know you ain't in the mood nor the mind for selling, but, well, Sheriff, I ain't a young woman no more. With the store and everything, keeping that place in order is falling way beside the quality and care it deserves. Bill nodded and looked away from the house and down at Irma. Well, Irma, thank you for your service over the years. That being said, I ain't selling it to nobody, especially Mr. Gray. But if you are struggling to keep it afloat, then I'll find someone else to tend to it. You ain't need to concern yourself no more. Bill reached out a hand and grasped Irma's. Thank you, Mrs. Brown. Bill kicked his legs into Lucia, spurring her on before Mrs. Brown could respond. He couldn't face a sad, broken smile she was always ready to offer him. Bill rode on down the street towards the end where the sheriff's station stood alone at the head. It was a stout, wide building with a couple of hitching posts in the shade and a wagon ready for prison transportation. To its right... Silent and watchful, the gallows. Thankfully, it had been over a year since Bill had to use the Lord's and the Law's last punishment, 
Tommy Lalo, a horse thief. The Grey's former stable boy had been found drunk in a field some miles outside of the town, a couple hours after the family had reported the horse stolen. Tommy had professed his innocence through snot and tears all the way up to the gallows. Tales of drinking with Richard and Oliver Grey, two sons of patriarch Quincy Grey, woke up with the law on him, no idea why. He was hung at lunchtime, and by dinner, nobody spoke of his name again. Justice. Bill laughed again as he dismounted and tied up Lucia. Had to laugh. Laughing stopped everything else. Patting Lucia on the neck, Bill entered through the doors of the sheriff station. It was a well-kept and organised building. Two desks in the centre for himself and his deputy, Benny. A bench against the wall for visitors or bail bondsmen. Cork board for wanted posters above it. A caged gun store for the sheriff's rifles, shotguns and pistols. And at the back, two cells facing each other. Most of the time, the cells were empty, but this morning, snoring and stinking, Reverend Marcus O'Reilly was sleeping, curled up on the floor of one of them. Bill sighed as he pulled off his hat and put it on his desk. He approached the cell and banged a hand against the bar. Say, Rev, you take too much of Benson's whiskey again? The Reverend snored louder and rolled away from Bill and faced the wall. Bill turned and walked back to his desk and sat down. The Lord's messenger could sleep it off for a few more hours before he roused him again. The door flung open, bringing forward a stream of dust, and Bill's deputy, Benny. Great hulking figure of a man, Benny had been with Bill for ten years ever since he turned eighteen. He was the son of the forgers, who had been corn farmers on land just outside of Saltwind. But when the typhoid swept through, it had claimed both his parents, as well as his older and younger brothers, Simon and William. The Greys had taken up the land without much protest from Benny. His body was built for farming, but his brain wasn't. The boy would have been made destitute if Bill had not stepped in. Benny had taken to the law like a bird to flight. He acted with great honour and always deferred to Bill, even taking the brunt of Bill's famous low moods in his stride. Bill looked up at the panting and sweating Benny before him. Now, Benny, don't tell me you was over at Cathy's place keeping watch for my arrival instead of being here watching over our guest. Benny blushed a little. His dalliance with Kathy Benson, daughter of Richard Benson, the saloon owner, was town-wide gossip. Richard would have preferred a land-owning man to take such an interest in his only daughter, but had accepted their courtship with gritted teeth and nary a bad word against him. N- no, Sheriff. I, I mean to say I-, I was there last night, begging your pardon. Kathy C- made me a stew, and-, and she said she wanted to eat it together like, as a man and woman should without drunken ramblings of the good reverend over there. The reverend, still asleep, groaned as if to rebuke that statement, but remained dead to the world. Well, now, I won't object to you taking your supper whilst on the job, but maybe have little Kathy bring it to the porch next time, huh? Benny nodded quickly. Well, thank you, Sheriff, but as I said, I I was over there last night. This morning I was out looking for you. Must have straight up passed each other like ships in the night, or morning, rather. Bill pulled out his leather tobacco pouch and subconsciously prepared a cigarette as he had time in memoriam while still locking eyes with Benny. That so? What was so urgent could not wait until my arrival here this morning. Benny stepped forwards and spoke in an almost conspiratorial whisper, despite their only company being drunk and asleep. It's trouble, sir. Over at the Magner place. That is to say, John Magner is in a bit of trouble with the Greys, Sheriff. 
Bill nodded as he lit his cigarette. He was not well acquainted with John Magna, nor his wife, Laura. The pair had taken up the property adjacent to the Greys' eastern boundary some two years ago. They were a sharecropping family. Land was owned by the Greys, but was lent out to the Magnas. The Greys provided the land, tools, a mule, seeds, and local merchants provided food and other such supplies. Mrs. Brown had graciously taken up the merchant provisions with a reasonable rate of interest, far lower than most would. From what Bill had heard, the Greys had siphoned off that land for sharecropping due to its arid nature. The soil was supposed to be lacking and the water flow poor. But by all accounts, the town's gossip mill told a story of great progress and fortitude from the Magnus. They had yet to bear children and could not afford any help, and the pair had turned the plot around. Bill even recalled Cathy telling Benny and himself about Magna's desire to buy the land from the Greys, his first two harvests being so bountiful despite the third of its proceeds going direct to Greys as payment for the land. Bill sucked on his cigarette as he ruminated on what little information he had. No doubt the Greys had little desire to allow Magna to buy the land straight up, Men of such means like the Greys never allowed a revenue stream to be removed, only added to and quantified. What seems to be the problem, Benny? Bill asked through a plume of exhaled smoke. Well, Sheriff, seems to me that there's some dispute over water. Gray's Manor, as you know, sits atop the hill up over yonder with the Magners down below it. M- Mr. Magners claimed the Greys are stopping the water getting down there as to mess with his crops. Bill nodded. Sounds about right. All right then, Benny. Let's get on down there before it spills over. Bill stood up from his chair and flicked his dead cigarette onto the floor. What about the rev, Sheriff? Benny asked, pointing his head towards the cell. Bill cast an eye over to the reverend, unperturbed and still sleeping, as if the day was nothing more than an extension of the night. Oh, I'm sure it'd be fine. Just make sure to lock that door behind us, huh? I'll leave the fool some water. Bill was shocked by the sight as he and Benny rode onto the Magna property. They had indeed turned the land around. Everywhere he looked he saw tall, fertile eaves of corn. Soon to be harvesting season and no doubt by the amount and the seemingly great quality of the crop, the Magnas were going to do very well indeed. No surprise they're going to look to buy the land outright, huh, Sheriff? Benny said. Bill nodded as they made their way through the carefully laid path up to the house. Indeed. Indeed. They've done very well for themselves, praise God. Benny nodded in response. He was a good man of faith. Up ahead of them, the Magna's house loomed over the crop. It was not a pretty house. Indeed, it had been rebuilt on the remains of its burnt-out predecessor, victim of the fleeing Confederates, like so many of the old houses around Saltwind. But the Magna's had cleaned it up well enough. A fresh lick of white paint had dried nicely on the exterior walls, and the fences had all been redug and built. It was at the fence that Bill saw John and Laura Magna, clearly in the grips of a dispute with the two grey boys, Richie and Oliver. Bill kicked Lucia into a canter, quickly arrived in time to watch John Magna reach for a worn-looking revolver on his belt. Easy now there, Mr Magna, let's not start reaching, Bill shouted. All four of them turned towards Bill and Benny with a start. Clearly they were too busy hollering at one another to pay attention to the road. Sheriff, I got a complaint to raise with you. John said, hand returning to his side. Bill eyed up the otherwise until now stranger that was John Magna. He was a slight man with thick black hair and sturdy-looking shoulders. 
He had the sharp blue eyes that fixed to look right into a man's soul when he pointed them at you, and Bill felt the intensity of their gaze as he dismounted and approached. I had heard that now, Mr. Magna. Bill looked over at the grey boys with a sharp eye. Boys, he said, as genial a greeting as he could offer them. Grey boys were as ugly as they were cruel. Both of them had the dusty brown hair of the land their father owned, and their faces were fixed in a permanent mixture of glee and disgust. A combination so difficult was a miracle their teeth hadn't fallen out from the strain. Sheriff, this here don't concern ye. This is a business dispute, not a legal one. Oliver said, his hand twitching nervously at his own belt, where a gold pistol sat glinting in the steadily rising morning sunlight. Bill shot a look over to Benny, who sat still on his horse, who nodded, imperceptible to everyone, bar the sheriff. He was watching. No concern there. Like hell it ain't! You're stopping the water from getting down to our whale, you son of a bitch! Laura Magna shouted. Bill looked over at this woman, shocked at her sudden outburst. She had fiery red hair to match her tongue, and the slender yet solid features of a hard-working woman. Despite the strain of the work on her face appearing in lines of worry and exertion, she was quite beautiful. You best shut your mouth, bitch, Richie Gray shouted. What did you say to my wife? John shouted, starting forward. Bill's hand was around his gun and pulling the trigger within a second, the sound of the shot aimed skyward, silencing them all. Now, now, let's all cool down, all right, people? Let's not let the heat of the day and the troubles you're having cloud our judgment, all right? I'm sure the buzzards are longing for some fresh corpses out here, but I surely ain't, and I know y'all agree. So, boys, Bill said, looking at the pair of brothers, what's all this about the water supply now, huh? I know y'all got the springs down here in your acres. No doubt they feed into almost every farm on the area. I know they wouldn't have a problem getting to Magnus' place here after their difficulty getting it when they first came to these parts. Judging by their crop, they've been using it well enough up until now. The greys looked between each other, their fervent eyes betraying their arguments before they even spoke. John spoke instead. These fools ain't the problem. They're just their daddy's muscle. They couldn't string sentence together between unless someone put down the foundations first for him. The brothers started towards John again, but stopped as Bill raised his pistol. Now, don't make me waste good bullets aiming at the sky. Do I need to speak to your daddy then, boys? Is that what I'm hearing? The boys said nothing. Certainly seems that way, Sheriff, Benny said from up on his horse. Go get your daddy. We aim to speak to someone with some sense, if not any decency, Laura said standing next to John, hand resting on his back. No need to send out a search party now, Sheriff. The group turned behind them to see Quincy Gray, top a white stallion, riding up the Magnus path. Bill shook his head. He had made the same error in perception these fools had upon his own arrival. Mr. Gray, good morning, Bill said, teeth gritting against each other once again. Good morning to you, Sheriff. What pleasure do we owe to this visit in our neck of the woods? It's been many a month since I've seen you and your colleague. Quincy sneered the last word at Benny. He held a very low opinion of the deputy, no doubt due to his great size. In a man like Quincy Gray's mind, a man of great size meant a mighty smaller brain in comparison. And while that may have been at least half true in regards to old Benny, Bill Cutty still do not like the statement. No doubt it was in part to Quincy Gray's own stature. He was a man of small height and even smaller weight. Indeed, as Bill looked at him, 
He looked like a baby grown some forty years overnight. He was bald on his head and his face, a hairless pale thing with yellowing eyes. They say riches provide a man with great luxuries, but Quincy Gray seemed to look sicker and weaker, with every cent more he earned. Well, I believe there's some dispute between yourselves and your sharecroppers here. Water supply that was once solid now seems to be shaken. I was hoping we could resolve it here and now, with all parties present and accounted for, Bill said. Quincy looked from Bill to the Magnus who glared at him, to his sons who looked up at their sickly father on his great horse with unabashed and unabated longing for approval. Well, I don't rightly know what water issue you were referring to, Sheriff. What I do know is that any problems between myself, a landowning and respectable pillar of this community, and my sharecropping tenants, is between those two parties alone. No need for the law to get itself muddled up in such trifles. I'm sure you can agree on that. John took a step towards Quincy on his horse. Lawman's got to get involved when you're downright interfering with my crop. John turned to Bill. See, Sheriff, Mr. Gray here is just awful sore that he and his malcontent sons over there couldn't get a rise out of this ground here. Thought they could foist it off on us upon arrival. Take as much money as they could before kicking us off due to bad crop yield. They didn't hold us in any regard to having skill or will enough to turn this dust into gold. Now that we have, instead of doing the right thing, rewarding a man and his wife for their struggles, and selling us the land at a decent price, they're trying to do whatever they can to run us into the ground and take the land back. What's right about that, huh? Bill nodded, chewing on his lip as he often did when in his own thoughts. By and large, John Magna was probably right. Down to the last detail. Greys had been pulling the same stunt with the sharecroppers since the Reconstruction. He did it to former slaves, immigrants, Americans. Anyone who wanted land but couldn't pay got a chance to work a field as sharecrop. Almost all of them poured their heart and soul into it, got their own sweat, blood and boot to the road for their troubles. But there wasn't anything illegal in it. Despite the noble goal of crop sharing in its outset, it simply driven more and more souls into poverty and destitution since it started, and the Greys took every step over the broken dreams and hard work of families with pride. Bill sighed as he looked at John Magner and his wife. I can't argue with your point, Mr. Magner. Darn right I agree with everything you said. But I can't police what a man does with his land or whatever natural elements that pass through it are on the way to another's, even if I would like to. Bill said this last point directly to Quincy, who simply smiled back at Bill. What, so you're going to do nothing about this, Sheriff? Laura said, stomping towards Bill. You're going to let these animals walk all over us? Bill looked from Quincy to Laura. Quincy's sneering grin made Bill sick to his stomach. I'm sorry, ma'am. All I can do is uphold the law. Right now I ain't seeing one broken. Laura sneered at Bill and turned away from him. <laughs> Upholding the law. I never heard something funnier in my whole damn life. Good day, Sheriff. Laura stomped away from the group and disappeared into the house. Quincy pulled on the reins of his horse. I thank you, Sheriff. Now, if you'll excuse me, my boy's here. We got real business to attend to. And John, I expect your payment from your crop sales in two weeks. Don't be late or you're default. Quincy kicked his horse to take his leave, but it was stopped by John's sudden grip on the reins. Like hell you are! 
Grey Boy's hands immediately went to their belts for their guns, but Benny up on his horse was faster, rifle raising and cocking before they could proceed any further. Easy now, boys, hands at your sides, Benny said. Quincy looked at John, the smallest slither of fear in his eyes. Sheriff, you, you see this man is assaulting me? Bill stepped towards the pair, one hand on John's shoulder, the other hovering over his pistol. Easy now, John. Don't start something that's going to end poorly for everyone here. John did not turn, still facing Quincy Gray on his horse. You want to drive us out of here? It ain't going to work, Mr. Gray. I'll have your money in two weeks, on time, and the correct amount. You want to stop our water supply? Fine. With the money from my crop, I can finally hire some help around here. I'll hire some fella to fetch me a wagon of water a day. And I'll keep working till I have enough money to buy land ten times better than this. Land far away from you and your wretched family. And when I do, I hope as we ride away in our horses, God strikes your land with thunder and lightning. And your precious tobacco crop goes up in flames. Then maybe you can watch your world burn around you. Quincy's eyes sharpened ever so slightly, as if he had been struck with a peculiar thought. But he said nothing. After a tense moment, John Magna tossed aside the reins and walked back to his house. Thanks for nothing, Sheriff, he shouted as he slammed the door behind him. Quincy Gray and Sheriff Bill Cutty shared a moment of silence until Quincy kicked his horse into action, jumped the fence and rode off towards his tobacco fields. His sons followed, throwing contemptible looks in the lawman's direction. At last, Bill and Benny were left alone, dust from the fleeing parties kicking up all around them. Well, that could have gone worse, Benny said, uncocking his rifle. Bill said nothing as he climbed up onto Lucia. Somehow, this wasn't over, he thought, as the pair kicked off and headed back to town. Bill lay awake that night in his bed, thinking over the day's events. When he was a younger man, he had thought tooth and nail with Quincy Gray on his unfair and contemptible practices with his tenants and sharecroppers. But with every fight and every argument, the families still lost everything still left their land with their hats in their hands, and the hollow-eyed looks of men done wrong when they had done everything right. In twenty years those hollow eyes had struck his heart and soul to the core, but he had come to realise that his exertions and his efforts only served to further the Grey's hold over the town of Saltwind, so he had allowed them to carry on in the ways that they did best, lying, cheating and stealing. It had made him sick and low when he was younger. He was supposed to be the law, the hand of justice that doled out punishment and retribution where it needed to be. But somehow over the years, all that had fallen away. Fallen away and been replaced with apathy. He often wondered if the nation itself, this land itself, bred it. This feeling. So many promises made on patches of dirt soaked with the blood of the natives, the slaves. Every fallen body in the pursuit of this empty ideal. This empty dream. Bill sat up from the bed and pulled open a drawer for his whiskey. He took a grateful swig, hoping the liquor would quieten these bitter thoughts and remembrances. Then outside his house, the sounds of arriving, fervative horse hooves. Sheriff! Sheriff, quick! Bill rose quickly and raced towards the door, opening it to see Benny stood outside, brow sweating and eyes wide. What is it, Benny? Sheriff! It's the Gray's place. They're tobacco fields. They're on fire. They're, they're saying John Magner's the one who's done it.
A fire set. A perpetrator named. But is everything all it appears to be in the town of Saltwind? Or will Sheriff Bill Cutty uncover just how far Quincy Gray and his family are willing to go to retain their control and influence over the town? Make sure to tune in for the next episode of the By the Fire podcast to see the tale of Inner Man's Pocket continue. And so, the fire dies. We will return, as we always do. Be sure to visit the still-burning fire of episodes gone by on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Work Stories Repeat website. Fire continually burns on social media in the digital fireplace that is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The teller looks forward to welcoming you to the fire again. Farewell. <laughs>